Live from the Haymarket Pub and Brewery in Chicago, Illinois, this is Bug House! tonight and happy new year this is the first bug house of the election year it's either gonna be a long year or it's gonna feel really short and painful like like getting your crotch waxed round of applause who's had a sack and crack or any kind of Brazilian like yeah just like who's had, who's had their junk wax that's what this year might be like. Just like a, a fucking rip and a painful, and then when you're done, you look like a prepubescent child. Yeah. Uh, all right, so we call this thing Bug House because in the mid-20th century, in Washington Square Park, uh, the city's most elite thinkers, and not elite in like the Hillary Clinton way, but elite like the best, would gather to debate the topics of the day. And they ended up calling that place Bug House, or that event Bug House Square, because Bug House is a kind of derogatory term for loony bin. Which is not derogatory. It's derogatory. So this is Bug House. This is where we get up and we debate the topics of the day. We don't debate our emotions. We don't debate our feelings. The six debaters that you're going to hear tonight, hear from tonight, were not given their topics, or were given their topics. They did not choose them. They were assigned their topics by yours truly. And I don't know whether they believe what they're going to argue tonight or not, but it doesn't matter. The point is, if you're going to argue something, you should have some intelligence and knowledge behind it. You can't argue with your feelings. Feelings are stupid. <laughs> and that'll be a topic for a later bug house. Are feelings stupid? No, they're not actually. But they can be. When you're talking about like things that affect society, like feelings matter a little bit, but facts are really important. So what you're going to hear tonight is the art of the dialectic. That's intelligence. We're going to use our brains to determine these important topics of the day. Today. These very important, pressing topics. And those topics are, is it better working for yourself? Or is it better working for the man? Yeah. <laughs> is Elvis worthy of being called the king? And finally, the Star Wars sequels, are they good or evil? When you leave tonight, you're going to have the answer. You're going to have those answers. So on the stage tonight, we will have Roberta Miles. She will be going up against uh, me because Chris Churchill was going to do it, but Chris doesn't know how to schedule things and he had to work tonight. Yeah. We'll forgive him. Uh, then we have Phyllis Porche. Oh, yeah. Going up against Rory Zacker. Okay. And then Brian Sweeney and Justin Flowers will be duking it out. So here's how it works. 
Our performers uh, have seven minutes to make their case. They can use visual aids or music or anything they want to make their case. Um, but they have seven minutes. At seven minutes, I will ding this bell. At that point, our judge, Vincent Truman, It's okay, he's a democratic judge, like he's, we like him. That's always bothered me, that judges, when they run for re-election or, election or re-election, that they're like, Democrat. It's like, you shouldn't, you shouldn't have a party, you're supposed to be impartial. Fucker. <laughs> Not you, Vincent. But the fucker on the billboard. Um, all right, so, at eight minutes, I'm gonna ding it twice. At that point, Vincent can deduct points so to speak, from your score. So even if you have the greatest argument, the most intelligent argument ever, but it goes like nine minutes or 20 minutes, Vincent can go like, no, no, no good. Uh, at the end of each bout, we will take questions from the audience, from you all. So you have an opportunity to ask a question to both performers or just one, and they have one minute to answer the question. That question or that answer can be used to inform Vincent on his decision, if he chooses. Um, I haven't had time to write a well-rehearsed, well-thought-out <laughs> argument, because I have a new job. Uh, so for the last, I don't know, I, we could, on my resume, it's like since 2006, I've been working for myself. I've been freelancing. Uh, I've been in and out of some full-time jobs along the way. And I am convinced that working for the man is a much better way to go about life. Freelancing gives you a lot of freedom. Uh, you can take vacation whenever you want. You can work from home in your underpants and boners. Uh, you can do kind of whatever you want as long as you get your work done. The problem is, is that if you take that vacation, you're not making any money. If you decide to not work that day, you're not making any money. And there's the whole feast or famine thing. And it is only feast or famine, at least in my experience. And I've got like a decade of this shit of experience. And you can get some long-term contracts that help out to keep things flowing steadily, but pretty much you're either broke or like, fuck, where am I gonna get the money next month? Or it's like, I have too much to do because I have to make every single dollar. And then you end up like doing a lot of jobs that you don't wanna do because you just need that $300 to just help out so you can afford your Red Bull habit. <laughs> so I've got this new job and I think finally it's, it's the right job for me. And let's all knock, knock wood, if you would, please. If you believe in um, good luck or pray, I don't give a shit, whatever. I, I, I'm gonna do it, knock wood. Um, <laughs> when you get it, when you've got a full-time gig working for the man, you're getting paid every two weeks. You know exactly how much you're going to get, and you can budget your money that way. You don't have to deal with invoicing. You don't have to deal with estimated taxes. You don't have to deal with nine different email accounts for all the all the companies you work for. It's so much simpler. Yeah, you gotta get up and you gotta be there on time and work long enough and sometimes you have to work more than the 40 hours that they pay you for and then and then and then. But you have to do that with freelance too. You have to work the weekends, you have to do all, it's the same kind of thing. 
When you work for the man, you get a new computer. You don't have to pay for office supplies. I have two staplers at my desk because I fucking can. Yeah. I don't know if I'm gonna use staplers. I don't know yet. It's still new. I, I, this is my sixth day at work. Today was my sixth day at work and I haven't used a stapler once. Either of them. And I have not touched the six tape dispensers that I grabbed from the closet at my desk. Your wife respects you more when you have a full-time job. You post it on LinkedIn and your ex-girlfriends like it. It's an incredible feeling. And you get to meet new people when you get a new job. I mean, I guess that's kind of a plus of working freelance is like you get a new client, you get like, I get to use all the old jokes again. I get to work out some new shit that's still old, you know. It's a good gig when you're working for the man. I think most importantly for me is that, because I, I, I suck with money. I suck at it. I suck, Elizabeth's looking at me like, shame on you. Why shame on me, why? I'll tell you later. Is it because of the Jewish thing? I will say it. I do, I'm not, I get panicked. I panic over trying to like budget and, and do the estimated taxes. And my wife, God bless her, she made this beautiful spreadsheet that helped me do my estimated taxes and like put things in and things auto load and they count and they add up and they deduct. And so like, I'm on top of this shit, which reminds me I have to write a check to get into the IRS by the 15th for last year. Yeah, okay. Good to know. Um, but see, this is what I'm talking about. It takes like two beers and a shot of whiskey for me to remember, oh fuck, I have to write my goddamn <laughs> check to the fucking IRS. <laughs> I don't have to do that in 2020 because I've got a job that does it for me. I get paid vacation, I get paid sick leave. People, wanna, people ask about my kids. None of my freelance clients ask about my kid or ask about my dog or ask about me or my wife or anything like that. They don't care about me. They just want the work. And even if the man is faking it, they're like, oh, tell me about your wife. <laughs> oh, is that a dog? Cool, does she, does she have four legs? Great, cool. <laughs> they're feigning interest and I'm okay with that because I get to talk to them about stuff and I get to hear about their stupid fucking dogs and their stupid fucking wives and their stupid fucking kids and their stupid fucking husbands or boyfriends or whatever it is, or their stupid fucking cats. <laughs> but here's the thing. When you spend time with somebody five days a week for like eight hours a day, you start to care about their stupid fucking cats because they become family. They become your friends. Working for the man is a much better way to go because it makes you feel more human and more in control of your life. Thank you. And now, please welcome Rebecca, Roberta Miles. I'm kidding, I was just joking, okay. Roberta Miles. I love her so much. I'm gonna take a minute to bring the microphone down because she's only three foot seven. Hang on. Okay. 
So. Is that okay? Yeah. Yeah. Sound. <laughs> so, no, let's do a sound test. Go ahead. Yeah. Check, check. It's got a little bit of a, a buzz to it that I think it should be turned out. <laughs> There's too much treble. Is that what you wanted to know? <laughs> it's not too much treble. You're too much trouble. <laughs> right? That's funny. Yeah. No? Okay. Roberta Miles. Can we move this? Like, oh my God. <laughs> I want people, no, not that far down. I just want people to see me, you know? Thanks. Is that, is that good? <laughs> You're a good helper. Okay. <laughs> is that good? That's great. Okay. Okay. Be your own boss. Live your life the way you want to. Go for a walk in the park when you want to. Play with the kids. Play with the grandchildren. Play with yourself. <laughs> what matters here is that you design your life. Be your own boss. Don't hide your identity, your predilections, your secret indiscretions. You don't have to fit in. You can be your own boss. Take the reins. Is your integrity out? No one needs to know, because you will be living the life of Riley. You don't have to share jack shit, because you are being your own boss. There is only you, and you love you. <laughs> Work for yourself. Relax. Have coffee. Have some wine. So many good things to enjoy. Be your own boss. You are not obligated to hang out with the kids at the water fountain. You hate the water fountain. You, you like bottled water, and now you can drink the water you want because you're being your own boss. I'm my own boss, and look at me. Do I look like a starving artist? No, because I know how to accessorize. <laughs> Would I have learned that working for the man? No. It's just a small part of being your own boss. I reek of style, verve, and joie de vie because I'm my own boss. I don't have hours to keep. I make appointments. I have meetings. I lunch at my own discretion because I'm being my own boss. I'm the president. I'm the owner of an S-Corp. I've got a tax number. I'm a boss. Other kids go to that school while I'm cutting class because I'm my own boss. I started young. I don't have to be in attendance because I'm my own boss. Fuck it. Insurance? Glom onto your friend. He owns a big corporation. He can write you in as his employee. It's doable when you're being your own boss. Transportation. You're already at home. Where are you going? Why are you in a rush? You're the boss. Let them come to you. Or buy a car. It's on the company's dime right off the gas. Where are you going anyway? You work from home. My creativity cannot be crushed 
by some soul-sucking man who follows the rules. I make my own rules. I am my own boss. Yes, I'm an entrepreneur and I'm good at it. Success, you say. What is your definition of success? One answer is clarity. And I'm clear, I am being my own boss. Answer to no one but yourself. After all, we make it up, all of it. It's all made up. So what's stopping you? Be your own boss, invent yourself. Don't let the man invent you. Your dream cannot be crushed unless you allow someone else to grind you into little small bits. You have imagination. <laughs> Speak your intentions. Be a risk taker. Look at me, I've got it all. I write when I want and where I want. You can find me in front of my computer, surrounded by garbage. But I, I can step over the schmucks. I can close my eyes to it and sit down and write. Clutter, I love it. Dirt is my friend. I write whatever and wherever I want. Why? Because I am being my own boss. I do what bosses do. I have what bosses have. I am an artist. I paint in a studio no bigger than your thumb. But does it bother me? No way, because I am being my own boss. I am a singer. Do I get up on the stage alone? No. I have a troop of nincompoops on the stage backing me up. Does, does magic happen? You bet. Why? Because I am the boss. They work for me. Because without me, they're just sitting at home watching TV with their thumbs stuck up their butts. <laughs> if the pay is too little, pass it by. Why? Because I'm worth more than that. I set the rules. When some drunken fool is misbehaving and I get in his face, what is he going to do? Hit me? Hasn't happened yet because I am the boss. How about the time I was taking a break from painting and I go outside to the alley to toss the garbage out and this big six foot tall city worker comes up to me and says, my name is Boots. And then Boots proceeds to tell me how he wants me to cut the branches from one of my trees because it gets in his way when he's driving the garbage truck through my alley. So I get in his face and I say, Boots, what you going to do about it? Hit me. And confusion comes over Boots' face. And it darkens and he backs away because he knows who's in charge, me, because I'm being my own boss. Fuck Boots. <laughs> That's what you get when you're when being your own, that's what being your own boss is all about. Telling the man to suck it. <laughs> suck it. Crush someone else's dream. Not mine, cause I'm the boss. When I'm teaching art to toddlers and they can't even color inside the lines and they don't even know how to hold their crayons, I turn to their moms and say, What's wrong with you? You can't even teach your child to hold a marker? Get out of my class.
room. You see, I'm the boss. I rule over two and three-year-olds and their and their distracted moms. And I can tell my band no drinking at, at my gig. And I can tell drunks where to go. And I sit on, and I can sit in my own debris and write. I paint in small, messy spaces. I sing for people when the money is good. And I decide when and where to do it all because I am being my own boss. I kowtow to no one. This is my life, and I designed it this way. Working for the man? Why not throw yourself off a bridge? Get run over by a car. Drink cyanide. Being your own boss is boss. <laughs> You're a wonderful opponent. Thank you. <laughs> Roberta Miles. Wait, come back up again. Do we have do we have questions from the audience? Do we have questions from the audience for either for for me or for Roberta? Yes, Phyllis. So if you're your own boss. Do you have to ask yourself for time off, or do you just take it? I just take it. I'm the boss. <laughs> Any other questions? You know what? I actually have a question. Because I'm, I'm wondering if um, being your own boss works for some people better than others. And I'm gonna I'm gonna ask this question. Uh, I wonder if it's better for postmenopausal women. So the question is. Can can working for yourself, can being your own boss be better for some than others? And is it better for postmenopausal women? I, I, and it's, just popped in my head. It's a great question. Is it a question directed at, at Roberta or well, me? No, no, both of you. Both of you. It's for both of us. Yeah. Yeah. Is there, like, do your arguments apply to certain demographics? To be more generous. Okay. Um, do the. Uh, you, do you want to answer this? Yeah. Okay. You want to take the first go at this one? Yeah. So I've been my own boss for a really long time, so it doesn't apply. Okay. No. <laughs> so like, like from no, I'm I'm teasing you. Okay. What you're asking for is my uh, emotional input, because a lot of that observing comes from an emotional place, like looking at women getting older, and do they really? Should they, are they better? Do, if they start their own business, are they better for it? You know, that's just my opinion as opposed to what's the real substance. Right, right. We'd have to collect data. Right? Yes. To, to know you the, would. The, the, the answer to this question is just a theory that, like, this is something that happens to postmenopausal women. They're just, like, sick of putting up with bullshit and they're better off being their own boss. That's just a theory. Just it's a theory. So, why did you have yeah. a question? <laughs> well, here, let, all right, so let, let, me, let me try and answer this. As, as a premenopausal woman, I can't answer with certainty. Um, also, I'm not a premenopausal woman. 
I won't. I'm going for it. I'm hoping for me. I'm hoping for the change. We could all use a little change. I think David Bowie said that. Uh, but if the question is, do the demographics matter? Like, as you get older, younger, is it harder? And I think that as a younger person, it's easier because you have fewer expenses and you're, you've still got that carefree, like, fuck it, I'm punk. I don't need the fucking man, uh, right? And I had that and I loved it. As you get older, and if you're at where I'm at, it's like, well, I've got responsibilities now. I've got a mortgage or rent and bills and a kid and a wife and a future and oh God. But then as, as you get older, it's like, hopefully, I don't have to work as hard because I've got money stored away and I've made the right choices and I've, I've got enough clients where I'm freelancing and I'm working for myself, but I've got enough long-term contracts and things I can count on. So it's, you know, building that up. So I think it does depend on your your age or maybe more your, your place, in place in life or place in, in your career. Or how you're made up to be, like how you are. You know what I mean? I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah just how you, you're made up to be, yeah. she said. Does that answer the question? Yes, it does. And then I just, I just another thought popped. <laughs> okay, so we have one more question from Elizabeth. Well, no, it's more it's, of like a comment. Yeah. Um, okay, we're going to do comments this week. <laughs> no, it's very important to be able to buy your own health insurance. Ah. Insurance. That is the comment. So the comment that Elizabeth had was that it's important to be able to buy your own health insurance. Can we respond to that? Do we have a minute each to respond to that? Yes, we do. Uh, do you want to respond yeah. to that? Yeah, okay. of course. So in my story, I talk about, you know, glam onto your friend who has a big corporation. And that does work because I've done it. <laughs> what? Only if you have that kind of friend. Right, right. You need to have that kind of friend, yes. Yes. So that's the first thing. You've got to go find those guys to be friends with. Uh, buying your own insurance sucks. No, I know. But it's better than holding a job you hate that's killing you. Well, holding a job you hate is a different situation because you can yeah. you not you just leave that job and go get another one. It's not that easy, of course. But I've, I've had my own insurance, and it's never as good as when you get into the bigger groups. And that's part of this is part of a much larger conversation of how the insurance structure in America is, right? But like I've I've got really good insurance now. We're paying about the same that we were paying for before maybe a little bit more even for me, my wife, and my kid, but we're able to use it more before the, you know, like who, who takes what and, you know, the deductible and all, it's, it's much, it's a much better situation. So I would argue that, yeah, getting the insurance is great, which is what makes working for the man wonderful. That said, it shouldn't be that way. You should be able to just buy your shit yeah. and it should yeah. all be great yeah. and, okay. So yeah. All right, so three questions in the audience. Are there any more burning questions? Because we usually limit it to three. No? Great, good. Okay, Vincent, yes. you've had, no, wait, Roberta, wait, stay. We're not done. Oh, my God. When have you ever wanted to leave a stage so quickly? What about that? Uh, Vincent, you have your, your ruling. I do. Uh, you both were incredible, but only one really had enough um, imagination.
let's go back. Let's go back. Let's go way back, way back when. November 19th, 1776, to, I'm sorry, 1775 to be exact. That's when the American colonists, colonists revolted against the British monarchy. No royalty in the new land. Oops. <laughs> Fast forward to May 4th, 1956, when Robert Johnson, not the blues man Robert Johnson, wrote an article declaring Elvis Presley the king of rock and roll. Elvis was, was Elvis the descendant of some long dead monarch? Did royal blood surge through his veins? No. Johnson made him king because of the large number of people who went to his concerts and his record sales. Elvis's ascension to the rock and roll throne was because people liked him. That's not how we elect presidents. Oh, wait. <laughs> Is there an electoral college for entertainers? I'm not sure. In America, we do not crown singers as monarchs, or do we? Using the above criteria, the Eagles should be the kings of rock and roll because they have sold $101 million and Elvis is dead. <laughs> Chicago, the Regal Theater, 1967. Radio disc jockey Purvis Spann literally crowned Aretha Franklin, the Queen of Soul, by walking on stage after her set and placing a crown on her head. Aretha was made queen because of her amazing voice and also for her involvement in the civil rights movement. She supported Angela Davis and her causes and sang at the inaugurations of Jimmy Carter, Bill Clinton, and Chicago's favorite son, Barack Obama. Hmm, favorite son, another moniker bestowed without a vote. <laughs> she did important work that in addition to her talent, earned her the title Queen of Soul. History tells us that monarchs often married their children to the children of other monarchs either to prevent wars or to grab more land. <laughs> so my question is, should the king of rock and roll and the queen of soul have married to create a new genre of music? I don't know what it would be called, but the possibilities would be very interesting. Let me just say this, I don't hate Elvis Presley. His music just isn't my taste. I admit my sisters and I watched some of his movies, uh, primarily because it was the 60s, and there was nothing else on. We also watched beauty pageants. <laughs> I don't know if cable was invented then, but we sure as hell didn't have it. So, uh, I don't own any of Elvis's music, and I've never seen him in concert, but I did use the Elvis stamp once. <laughs> Is he my king? No. And it's not because of racist comments attributed to him, but never prove it, never proven, I just don't care for his music, and I am entitled to do that. For a country that wanted to distance itself from a monarchy, we have quite a few kings, queens, and princesses. Surprisingly, no princes, except for the man himself, prince, a title bestowed upon him by his parents. <laughs> he was also known as his royal badness, the high priest of pop, and the prince of funk. I'm sure the Founding Fathers, were they alive today, would be very upset because Americans love royalty so much, and we have bestowed honorifics on many performers who just don't deserve it. For example, Michael Jackson, the king of pop. 
That was a title he gave himself <laughs> after becoming a big star on MTV. In fact, MJ sent a memo to MTV instructing them to only refer to him as the king of pop, and the VJs had to do it at least twice a day. To be fair, Elvis did not name himself the king of rock and roll, but he didn't say, hey, you know what? I think Eric Clapton or John Lennon or Paul McCartney should have that title. In my research, I found that Wikipedia has, I did not use the Google this time, Wikipedia has 33 pages of entertainers worldwide with royal designations. I won't recount them here, but you should check it out. When a king dies, his heirs, usually one of his children, assumes the throne. Having no male heir, does that automatically make Lisa Marie the reigning queen of rock and roll? She's a singer and songwriter and has put out three albums. When is her royal installation? Or Paris Jackson, apparently she sings well. Does her father's death automatically make her the queen of pop? I think Madonna and Mariah Carey would take her and eventually each other to court <laughs> because Madge and Mariah are also the current queens of pop. Kelly Clarkson is the queen of covers, but she does write her own songs. Elvis didn't. In an interview in 1957, he said, I never wrote a song in my life. I've never even had an idea for a song. <laughs> but he did receive unearned co-writing credit because his record label demanded that songwriters give him 50% credit before he would record their music. My point is this. Throughout history, royalty were considered special, either through their lineage or acts of valor, kindness, or power. Today, we have so many kings and queens of pop, rock, rap, K-pop, and every other genre that the title has no meaning. I mean, if all singers are special, then nobody is. Thank you.
Thank you very much. Thank you. Just want to say thank you all for coming out here today. It means a lot. I don't know who that guy is. Maestro, if you don't mind. Everybody having fun so far? Feeling good? Alright, a lot of people here are saying a lot of things about me tonight. But I'm going to tell you the truth right now. Turn it up a little bit. There must be a light burning brighter somewhere. Birds flying higher in the sky. So blue, if I can dream of a better land where all my brothers walk hand in hand. Tell me why, oh, why, oh, why can't my dream come true? There must be peace and understanding sometime. Strong winds of promise that will blow away the doubt and fear. If I can dream of a warmer sun where hope keeps shining on everyone, tell me why. Oh, why? Oh, why can't that sun? cloud with too much rain we're trapped in a world that's troubled with pain but as long as a man has the strength to dream he can redeem his soul There's a trembling question. Thank you. Still, I am sure that the answers, answers gonna come somehow out there in the dark. There's a beckoning candle, oh yeah. And while I can think, while I can talk, while I can stand, while I can walk, while I can dream, oh, please let me dream come true. That's just one of the songs that Elvis Presley performed. Now, listen, Elvis is the king of rock and roll. He's the king. Elvis did not invent rock and roll. He never claimed to. He made it popular for the masses. There's many great songs that came before Elvis that was the birth of rock and roll. Rocket 88, um, Jackie Wilson, uh, Ike Turner, lots of other people, Chuck Berry. But Elvis made 
music, and rock and roll for everybody. Elvis took what African-American performers were, were doing, and he made it viable to everybody. The world was racist back then. It's true. Still is. But, uh, no, but El Elvis, Elvis made music dangerous. Elvis made music that Caucasian kids could enjoy, and he took from the African-American performers, and he made it for everybody. Elvis changed the landscape. And, if he, and Elvis has sold almost a billion records, um, give or take. He's made over 23 movies that are all fantastic. No, 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 some are bad. But, um, but Elvis, before anyone did anything, Elvis changed everything. He is Mr. Billboard. He has the most charted hits. He has the most top 40 hits. He has the most platinum hits, the most gold hits, and the most two-sided hits of all time. Elvis is in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, the Gospel Hall of Fame. He is in the Blues Hall of Fame. He is in the R&B Hall of Fame. No one has ever done what Elvis has done. And if it wasn't for Elvis, there would not be any Beatles. There would not be any Rolling Stones. There would not be any rock and roll today. Um, quote from John Lennon, before Elvis, there was nothing. Nothing really affected me until I heard Elvis. If there hadn't been an Elvis, there wouldn't have been the Beatles. John Lennon said that. A lot of people have accused Elvis of stealing the black man's music, when in fact, every black solo entertainer copied his moves. Jackie Wilson said that. Elvis is the greatest cultural force in the 20th century. He introduced the beat to everything. Music, language, clothes. It's a whole new social revolution. The 60s comes from it. Leonard Bernstein. When I first heard Elvis's voice, I just knew that I wasn't gonna work for anybody and nobody was gonna be my boss. Hearing him for the first time was like busting out of jail. Bob Dylan. There have been a lot of tough guys. There have been pretenders and there have been contenders but there is only one king, Bruce Springsteen. I don't think there is a musician today that hasn't been affected by Elvis's music. His definitive years, 1954 to 1957, can only be described as rock's cornerstone. He was the original cool, Brian Setzer. He's just the greatest entertainer that ever lived, and I think it's because he had such presence. When Elvis walked into a room, Elvis Presley was in the fucking room. I don't give a fuck who was in the room with him, Bogart, or Marilyn Monroe, Eddie Murphy. <laughs> now, now listen, Elvis was a true king. He was flawed, he was human, he was weird. Uh, it's true. Um, but again, there would not be anything close to what resembles rock and roll today if Elvis hadn't walked into Sun Records in 1954 and recorded that song for his mother called That's All Right. Sam Phillips discovered Elvis's talent and made him marketable to young Bobby Soxer, Caucasian teens. He introduced them to that rhythm and blues music that African-American performers were doing. And because the world was the way it was and still is the way it is, they couldn't get their music out there. Elvis helped do that. Elvis was not racist. Elvis never took claim for any of that stuff. He might not have written a song, but Elvis performed the shit out of every song he ever recorded. My last question. What's the name of Elvis's house? All right, somebody name me another rock and roll performer's house. What's it called? Shenandoah. <laughs> That's not a house. Neverland. I heard Paisley Park, right? All right. King of Pop's house, King of Rock's house, Graceland. Thank you very much. I'm done.
Elvis has left the stage. All right, Rory Zacher as the king for part of it, and as Rory Zacher for the rest of it. Let's hear it for him. Any questions from the audience for either performer, for either Phyllis or Elvis Zacher? <laughs> Rory Presley. That'll just came off too. Nope. No questions at all. I have a question then. Uh, and this is for both of you. You each have a minute to give an answer. If Elvis is the king, is he deserving of it? I'm sorry, no, let me rephrase that. That's, doesn't, that, shut up. <laughs> if Elvis is the king, was he a good king? Yes. <laughs> I don't know that Elvis was a good king. Oh, sorry. I don't know that Elvis was a good king. There's not a museum named after him. His house is named after him. There is nothing about him doing great works for the poor or for the sick or the hungry, so I'm gonna go with no. Actually, Elvis donated a lot of money to charities, to um, poor people in and around the Memphis area. He contributed a lot to the, to the economy of Memphis. Um, you know the old saying, give her a Cadillac? Elvis bought a lot of Cadillacs for a lot of needy people. <laughs> Another thing that Elvis did that a lot of black people did is buy Cadillacs. So I'm just, I'm just. Okay. Was that a groan? Come on. Look at the. These are. It's fucking data. It's out there. Don't look at me. I didn't look at you. Jesus. Apparently, Elvis made racism. Is what he did. All right. Um, and I think that, um, Vincent, this is not part of the, uh, just don't, this is not going on the record, but, oh, you have a question? Okay, yes, please, thank you, Jesus, yes. Okay, um, so you said that you think that Elvis is, he never took credit from Mama Thornton or anything like that, you said? <laughs> he did take, um, what's it called, Amos of the Hound Dog. Hmm? He took that from her. Great question. So the question is... Did he give her the credit that she deserved? So, Rory, you said that Elvis never took credit for taking music from, from other performers, black, white, or otherwise. Right. Did he give credit to Mama Thornton, to Mama Thornton for Ain't Nothing But a Hound Dog? Well, if, if you look at the transcripts of Hound Dog, it doesn't say written by Elvis Presley. It would say written by, um, did, she, did she write it? Uh, publishing House. Publishing House. Um, I think everybody knows that she did a version of it. Elvis did versions of lots of other songs. Um, I don't think he ever said he pushed her out of the way. He just made it more marketable. So if he is the king, why didn't he give her the credit, though? Why didn't the people who published the song give her the credit? Because he said it was during a different time. Well, Elvis was the artist. He wasn't the, he wasn't the manager. That would be something for the colonel. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Are there any other questions about the king? Or the supposed king? Alleged king? Did you bring any quaaludes? <laughs> the question is, did you bring any quaaludes? Is that for Rory or Phyllis? <laughs> Either way. All right, Phyllis, did you bring any quaaludes? Uh, no, but I do have some Xanax. No, but she has some Xanax. Rory, did you bring any quaaludes? Um, just so you know, um, every, 
one of your drinks tonight was spiked with a Quaalude, so. Tuesday's gonna be a great day. All right. Hope you're not busy for a week or so. <laughs> Elvis is a complicated figure. He's a complicated figure. All right, Vincent, do you have your ruling? I do. Um, again, both were amazing. I think if the Q&A would have gone on, it would have swayed my decision, but as is, I have to say, Elvis is king. Elvis is king. Uh, you guys, the sequels are a force for good because it is all about community, right? <laughs> and I wish to make clear that I do not mean this community. Yes. For all of you listening at home, uh, I'm referring to the Twitter-verse uh, community. Um, we have someone who cares what his name is. I'll read his tweet. Did you enjoy joining Kathleen Kennedy in raping Luke Skywalker and Carrie Fisher's dead body? Oh. <laughs> well, that's terrible. Um, and I came across another tweet that uh, I just have to share because it's from Stormy Daniels, I guess. <laughs> and it's just uh, like, I still can't figure out why, what, what the fuck, right? Uh, so, oh, there she is in all of her lovely glory. Stormy Daniels, right? Certified steaming pile of shit, last Jedi. Go ahead and unfollow me in case no one has noticed I don't give a fuck. It's the worst movie ever made, and Ryan Johnson can drop dead. <laughs> what a jerk. <laughs> Look, guys, there have been a disgusting amount of hateful, racist, misogynistic, the list goes on, tweets or whatnot, around the online community, this, these two are certainly on the uh, milder end of things, <laughs> to be certain. But unfortunately, that is just the disgusting nature of the online community in general, and not something in any way, shape, or form specific to this one, right? So we start first, as you can see, with a small form of community. The family unit. I mean, look at these awesome people. Jesus Christ, that's great. Because here's the deal. Star Wars has the ability to bring families closer together. And what a better way to bridge the generational gap that you see here than for sequels to bring younger generations into the fold. The new movies undoubtedly Spark interest in the old movies, and the bridge is complete. It's that simple, right? For those families who take a deep interest in Star Wars, uh, this is not only a fun activity, but a bond that will last a lifetime. I mean, look at these lovely nerds. Look at this. <laughs> it's truly amazing. 
Uh, for those who take deep interests in Star Wars, but perhaps don't have the connections with their family or simply wish to take their interests further, annual expos are held year-round, Comic-Con, C2E2, more localized events like Star Wars Night at the Bulls game, etc. right? These events energize people and physically bring them together in an increasingly isolated society. New friends are made. Wives and husbands meet. Would many of these events exist without the sequels? Of course, right? They would. But it's the sequels that keep the fire burning bright. It's the sequels that bring people together to watch trailers and sneak peeks and provide nerdy discussions until their hearts are content. It's the sequels that bring in the new blood that keeps the community alive, which otherwise, quite literally, might be dying off. <laughs> Lastly, as you see here, the Star Wars community is a force for good among the broader community. <laughs> Just recently, Mark Hamill announced Star Wars Force for Change. Starting April 5th, this group will match donations made to UNICEF Kid Power. American Red Cross, Boys and Girls Clubs of America, and Make-A-Wish. <laughs> a group calling themselves the 501 Legion, a group which anyone can join, frequently visits children's hospitals in full Star Wars garb. You can again apply the same logic. Sequels bring more people into the fold, meaning more contributions, more volunteers, and more good deeds, like you see here. Now here's the deal. Are the sequels critically any good? I don't know. Is Jar Jar Binks a mistake? I don't know. Probably you think so. Okay. Probably. Who cares? <laughs> Is Disney, who owns the rights to Star Wars now, a horrid corporation? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All solid debates for a different time. But look. Look at Mark Hamill. Looking in that kid's eyes with R2-D2, the sequels expand and fortify community in a time when it can be difficult to find. Thank you. What's that kid thinking? <laughs>
Is that a cure? Uh, all right, so Justin Flowers. <laughs> no, seriously, Justin Flowers. I'm just, I'm laughing at the picture. Yeah, Justin Flowers. Great argument. And let's hear the other side of it now. Good and evil. Balance of the force. Brian Sweeney. In 1933, Americans were suffering through the worst year of the Great Depression. Unemployment peaked at 25.2%, making one in four Americans jobless. The Midwest was going through a continuing drought, making even more of the land into the Dust Bowl. And across the ocean, Adolf Hitler, maybe you've heard of him, <laughs> became the chancellor of Germany. He didn't stop there. It got worse. But that in 1933, he opened the first concentration camp in Dachau. And Elvis just clapped, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> So maybe the points can get retroactively deducted, but... Anywho... <clears throat> the Golden Gate Bridge began construction in San Francisco. First Major League All-Star game was played at Comiskey Park in the greatest city in the world, Chicago! The U.S and Russia established formal diplomatic relations, and there was never a problem afterward. <laughs> the 21st Amendment repealed prohibition, huh? Yeah, yeah. drink up, you wino bastards. <laughs> I mean that with love. Um, but all of that is a bunch of fucking bullshit. <laughs> no one cares about that because in that year in Hollywood, California, <laughs> a composer by the name of Alfred Newman, yes, Alfred Newman was composing, did compose one of the most famous of all musical compositions in the history of the world. What? Oh. <laughs> and that is... Hmm. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes. Oh, shit. Take that, Hitler. <laughs> he was a Russian Jewish man in Hollywood. Um, 20th century fanfare was played in the key of B minor, as I know you all know. And uh, 44 years later, when a nerd with a beard from Southern California 
made a space adventure movie for Fox. He insisted that that little score be put before the film, even though it had fallen out of fashion in 1977, because people were making cool movies. But this was uh, this bearded fucking nerd from Southern California who was like, no, I like it. And so he was so adamant about it that the person that he had hired to do the musical score for this movie, who was, by the way, introduced to him and recommended to him by his friend who was also a fucking nerd with a beard, who used this guy to do the music for his little shark movie. What could he be talking about? It was Jaws. <laughs> a few years earlier, he made it the main theme for the space movie in the key of D flat major, so that it would fit. This is, this is all true. So that it would fit with the original, the, the main title sequence would fit with the Fox fanfare. So it would be like the bum, 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 and then a little text screen that talks about how this is happening a far distance from here in a, a time period that has gone by. I believe that's what it first said. And uh, then it was, yeah. We all know that, because it sounds like Superman and Raiders. All right, John Williams is the same. Anyway. What's that? Star Wars Superman. Uh, 35 years later in 2012, when we all know the Mayans predicted the world would end, and it sadly did not, uh, Star Wars was bought by the Walt Disney Company. For the first Star Wars movie, they decided on a radical departure from the previous films and to hire a director who was just a white fucking nerd from Southern California who didn't have a beard. Aww. Yeah. But then I saw some pictures and he did have a beard, but it didn't work for that joke. But no one really laughed anyways, who cares? Um, Unfortunately, this is where we run into problems. Problem is that J.J. Abrams is very bad at what he does, aside from the facial hair problem. He's a storyteller with literally absolutely nothing to say. Who here has seen Toy Story 3? The third one. It's the one with the toys. Um, in that movie, it's so well constructed that it makes us believe that our beloved characters, Woody and Buzz and Jesse, and Rex and Ham, were all going to just die in a garbage dump incinerator, and everyone was like, oh my god, this is how the story ends. We were all like caught up in it, people cried, and they were like, oh my god. And then when it ends, it's like, oh wait, I'm gonna fucking kill the Toy Story people in a goddamn garbage dump fire? Like, what am I thinking? That's the greatness of what storytelling can do. It can cause you to be like, what, what, what? And then you don't even realize, like, because you're so caught up in it. And that's why I don't want to hear the ridiculous argument that people always make of like, it's just a movie about space wizards. Oh, I'm sorry, that didn't make sense for you. Shut up. <laughs> it's a bullshit argument, and you're being intellectually dishonest. Shame on you. Shame. Elvis. <laughs> <laughs> 
J.J. Abrams is an empty and hollow artist that I literally can't say exactly what matters to him, what he believes, what he cares about, but going over his output, there is only one constant. In 1998, the J.J. Abrams, or uh, the J.J. Abrams, what I wrote, created Felicity, oh, the J.J. Abrams created Felicity, uh, and it was about a girl who decided at her high school graduation to change colleges and go to the school that her crush is going to instead. Anyway, it's a romantic drama comedy, and in the fourth and final season, in the last five episodes, Felicity's goth roommate, who is a witch, cast a spell that caused Felicity to travel back in time two seasons and relive those past two seasons and fix mistakes. That's true. That's the end of Felicity. J.J. Abrams' hit show, Lost, which he only wrote the pilot for, but whatever. It's another time travel thing to fix problems. J.J.'s Star Trek movie starts out by creating an alternate reality so that it can do whatever it wants with the characters. In Star Trek Into Darkness, the movie remakes elements of the classic Star Trek movie, Wrath of Khan, but changes certain things. Like, in the Wrath of Khan, Kirk is like, I don't believe in no-win situations, because Kirk, as a young man, was always able to pull it out of his ass at the last second and be like, I'm the greatest, I'm great, I'm great. But at the end of Wrath of Khan, he's able to fix it, and he doesn't know how, but somehow Spock has helped him, but Spock gave his life, saving the Enterprise and getting them out of danger, and so Kirk learns that there are such things as no-win situations. In JJ's version, Kirk dies for the ship, so Spock punches Khan in the fucking face until Khan almost dies. <laughs> then literally, a minute later, they discover a cure for death, and Captain Kirk is brought back to life. And the movie, he gives a speech and the movie ends. So, that's, that's the end, I'm sorry. So J.J. has made, makes Force Awakens, and he lifts a bunch of mysteries, he leaves a bunch of mysteries, like, who is Supreme Leader Snoke? What happened to Luke Skywalker? Why did Ben Solo go to the dark side? How did Maz Kanata get the Luke's lightsaber? And what of all the great new iconic characters like Umkar Plutt and Lore Santeca and Snap Wexley and Bala Tick? What's her deal? <laughs> and then Ryan Johnson was left to make the second part of the trilogy in Last Jedi. And this movie made people very mad. But I have a theory about this. Um, Last Jedi isn't great, and most of it doesn't make sense, and its themes are all over the place, and it really doesn't have a point, but I feel there was a bigger thing that Last Jedi was competing with. Now, after the 2016 election, this is my theory, it always feels like there's been this heavy depression hanging over everything. <laughs> Nothing feels as good as it once did. And having a president saying every day that hope is stupid and nothing matters has to take a toll on the national psyche at large. Even if you're a fan of Trump, like Justin, <laughs> it has to feel weird. <laughs> he's a proud boy. That's what he's, know, he's just, he had a lot of opinions about Ray <laughs> earlier. I was like, all right. <laughs> he's like, black stormtrooper. <laughs> uh, every, everything 
you'd been taught about America and like the presidency and how like you better, you know, like do this or like so you can grow up to be president, it's gone. Like even regardless of what side you're on, it's all like, oh shit, this has all just been a house of cards and that affects the fuck out of you. Like that is PTSD in a, in a version that we all are dealing with right now. And Star Wars happened to be there at the time. So we are fucking pissed because we don't know why we're so angry all the time. And it's just there. So it's like Star Trek's not, it's evil in the sense of like it has nothing left to say and it doesn't care. And it once mattered. Things used to matter like to people. And now they just sort of make it and then we get mad about it and then move on and then get mad about something else a little later and then if you go back, like, your Facebook memories, like, will be like, God, I hope Paul Reiser dies. And you're like, what did Paul Reiser do a year ago? I don't even remember. And you go back, and you're like, mm, oh, my God, Paul Reiser? So, is it evil? I think it's, uh, to use one more Holocaust quote, uh, reference the banality of evil. Yeah. More so, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, the Hague. Let's go to the Hague. Hague, Kylo. So like, yeah. It JJ. He wrote the pilot for Lost. He threw a polar bear on. He was like a guy in a wheelchair can now walk. And then he was like, you guys can do the rest. And he left. And they were like, why did he do that? He's like, I don't know. I'm just a fucking nerd. I don't know. I'm gonna grow a beard later, maybe. Um, and then uh, they've tried to figure it out as best they could. JJ, so JJ Abrams giving like the ending of the Skywalker saga, it's fucking crazy because he's a guy who can start strong, but like that's it, can't really do anything. All right, that's my third bell. So if there's any more questions, you can uh, you can ask me. I have a lot of Star Wars thoughts. The end. Uh, thank you. <laughs> Brian Sweeney. All right, do we have any questions for either Brian or Justin about Star Wars? The Star Wars prequels, or sequels to be... Or prequels. Or prequels. Fuck it. Star Wars. <laughs> no questions about Star Wars at all? Really? None? There's something left. There's nothing left to say. I thought I had one, but I think it was answered at some point. Um, okay. Wait. Wait. Yeah, Elvis. Please, please, Mr. Elvis. Mr. Elvis. Uh, do you feel the Mandalorian is just as bad as the new sequels? The question is, do you feel the Mandalorian is just as bad as the sequels? For Brian? <laughs> so okay, so the question is: Is the Mandal so for both? Is the how, that's been, you know, how do you feel about the Mandalorian as as a, as a sequel? In the, in the Star Wars universe. Okay, Brian, you have one minute. Okay. Um, the Mandalorian is obviously uh, people really like it, and it seems to be uh, episodic television is a lot different than. Uh, the sequel trilogy, which is what this was limited to. So, um, yeah, I think that there's a lot you can flesh out side characters, and that's a lot usually more interesting is like finding out 
uh, version or finding out like what the side characters are up to, like Return of the Jedi when you see like Jabba's palace and there's a bunch of weirdos in there. You're like, holy shit! All these people look like they have uh, some stories to tell, but you don't want them to like stop and be like, hello, I'm Bib Fortuna and this is what I'm up all about. <laughs> well, maybe I don't know. It'd be kind of funny. He's the guy with the big you know, wrap around it. She knows. She's like, fuck yeah, bro. <laughs> you and me and Elvis, we know. Uh, so yeah. Um, there's gonna be good and bad, and uh, John Favreau seems to be doing well with The Mandalorian. And apparently it has a baby Yoda. I think I've heard that. I don't know. Yeah, I'm, I'm Justin. Yeah. Uh, I've never seen it. I don't plan on it. Uh, I would absolutely never give Disney my money <laughs> in that regard. As far as how it reflects the debate, again, uh, a force for good or evil is essentially the question. I think like force is power. So if people enjoy the Mandalorian and therefore wish to use that enjoyment uh, to uh, create community or uh, uh, do good things in this world, uh, talk to some children that are sick or something, whatever, donate to the uh, for, I, I, I really hope that they do like it if that's what prompts them to do good things. Real, real quick, he said the force is power. It sounds like a goddamn Sith. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> All right. Judge Vincent, do you have your ruling? Oh, it's a tough one. It is tough. This is a really tough one. I think, you know, I, I got to put the cards on the table, and if the kid was bald, I would have gone with you. Uh, <laughs> okay. So the sequels, so, the, so you're going with Brian Sweeney. Yes. That the, that the sequels are Sith, that they are pure evil. Yeah. All right, there you go. Let's hear it. If the kid was bald in Justin's picture, so you want you need children to be sicker in order to make Star Wars truly suck. Wait, some all right, wait, shit. For just all right, I'll, I don't know, man. I, wait, that's in Justin's defense, the kid could have been so sick that they were like, wouldn't matter if he got chemo. If he, if he had Ooh, so wait, Mark Hamill has to like say that? If it was a video, I'd be like, this kid's fucking dead. It's almost like Obi-Wan going, it's not worth fighting anymore, I mean, just give so in. It's so close, it's so close. It's, if he was wearing a wig, I would have gone with the, the kid has no <laughs> sense of drama. The judge rules, that's it. Okay, there you go, Brian Sweeney's the winner. The Star Wars sequels suck shit, they're evil, there you go. For Bug House, we're here every uh, first, usually the first one of the month. Check out the podcast, and we'll we'll talk to you next time. Thank you so much. Good night.